Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast, no joke here, that did not have a credit card until it was well into its 30s. And it was because credit cards are so scary, (laughs) Um, especially when you see credit cards just spiral out of control for people around you. And yes, I'm talking about that because that's something we're going to talk about today. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 170. Today's guest is the many hyphenate Isabel Varela. Seriously, she does so many things. She's a keynote speaker, a life coach, a master tailor, and she's a sustainability activist. And at the age of 26, she found herself with more than $100,000 in credit card debt, all from clothes, cosmetics, and accessories. Today, she'll tell us how she got there, how she got out of it, and how she has helped others work through their addiction to shopping, thanks to what she's learned along the way. Before we jump into that, I want to talk to you a little bit about another way brands and retailers spend a lot of money to market to you in a much sneakier way, and that's Google AdWords. This is one of those sort of like invisible forces that really does steer our shopping behavior in ways that we, well, you'll be aware of it now after you listen to this, but you might not be aware of it right now, right? In last week's episode, I talked about how retailers are paying money to appear at the top of searches like how to dress like Barbie as an adult or Barbie clothes for adults or just Barbie or pink or anything related to the summer of Barbie and stuff that you could buy related to it, right? Even brands that don't actually have partnerships with Mattel or the Barbie film are doing this. For example, Shein is not in the midst of any sort of licensed collaboration with Mattel right now, but when you search Barbie clothes for women, Shein is in the top sponsored search results on Google Shopping. Same goes for Anthropology, Uniqlo, Dolls Kill, all showing pink clothing in the search results. No Barbie logos or anything on it. How does that happen? I mean, they're not technically Barbie, right? That's a really great question, and we're going to get into that right now. So, Let's start with one lesson many retailers, many e-commerce specialists have learned in the past couple of decades of shopping online. People get sort of scroll fatigue pretty fast. They'll definitely look at the first page of search results. They might look at the second page of search results, but after that, they'll probably stop looking, especially if they're shopping. That's why appearing at the top of these search results, like on the first page, is so important. Now, you probably assume, like I did for a long time, that when you type a question into Google, you know, some search terms, even if it's like Barbie clothes for adults, you assume that you are seeing results in order of relevance, right? Like what best matches what you just asked? Or perhaps... You might even think, which I have also thought in the past very naively, that what you see first is the stuff that's the most verified, accurate, trustworthy. 
Like those are the best sources for the truest information. That'd be really nice, right? Unfortunately, (laughs) that is not how Google search works, especially when we get into the realm of shopping. Okay, so you, yes, you are a retailer and you have a bunch of pink clothes you would like to sell. None of them have Barbie on them, but you want customers to know that you have a lot of clothes that would be great for them to buy to go see Barbie. Now, if you didn't listen to the last episode of Clothes Horse, you should go listen to the intro right now where I tell you that you don't need to buy new clothes to go see the Barbie movie, and I stand by that. We'll wait until you do that, because I just want to make sure that you know we're not encouraging anyone to buy anything new for the Barbie movie, even though we're talking about it as an example. Okay, so you listen to that. We're all in agreement. None of us need to buy anything new. Let's get back into our scenario here, okay? You're a retailer, and you're selling pink clothes. You want people to see them, and you also know, because you've done your due diligence, you understand Google search now, you know that it's kind of an early bird gets the worm situation when people are searching online for shopping purposes. So you want to be at the top. What you are going to do is bid on those search words, whether it's Barbie clothes for adults, Barbie clothes women, pink clothes, pink clothes women, you will bid against other retailers to come up at the top of those search results. And here's how it works, okay? First, advertisers, aka retailers, bid on keywords and search terms. Now, Google calls this creating ads, but really, you're just bidding on these words. You're not actually making an ad, but they sell these as ads, right? That's that's the conceit there. So now, a customer, prospective customer, will say, gets onto Google and types in the search words that you just bid on. If no one types that search in, you're never gonna get charged a thing. But if a search term that a customer typed in, like they said, Barbie clothes pink or Barbie clothes women, pink clothes for women, whatever you decided to bid on, when someone searches that, then an auction is triggered. Google will enter all of the brands who bid into this auction. And allegedly they use the bids and a blend of quality scores and ad rank formulas to choose the winners. So ostensibly, the best retailers would pull in at the top, but I'm here to tell you that is not true. Whoever placed the highest bid and also solved for all of these other formulas Google says it has will appear at the top. Everyone else falls behind that based on their bid. Advertisers will only pay when their link is clicked but they will pay whatever they bid every time it is clicked. And these bids can be a few dollars to a few more dollars. So it's not just a few pennies that people are putting in as sort of their bid on these words. To be clear, the retailers that bid the highest will be featured first. Those who bid the least or not at all will not appear or it'll be many pages in which means they basically haven't appeared because most customers aren't gonna look that hard. Once again, the retailer pays every time someone clicks on their ad in the search results. So it's important to be very strategic because this can add up super fast. So they're just, they don't wanna be throwing away money on search terms that don't convert browsers into customers. They're gonna be really smart about what they choose here. 
Here's where this starts to become, I don't know, unfair. This is so expensive, especially if it's like the search words of the moment, like right now, Barbie, pink, pink clothes, that kind of thing. These words are so expensive right now. You have so many people looking for them. And every time they click into your website, you're paying Google some more money, right? This means that many small businesses or even just smaller brands cannot play this game at all. I want you to put a pin in that because we're going to come back to it. This also means that customers only see retailers and brands that have a big budget for this kind of thing, meaning lots of fast fashion. I have definitely worked for smaller brands who couldn't even afford to bid on words that were really important to their business model, their customer archetype, their assortment, right? So like words like dress or suit, plaid suit, things that they were selling day in, day out, they could not bid on because they couldn't afford it. They were just too expensive. And worse, because a lot of customers don't know this is happening, they assume that the results they are seeing at the top of these search results are based on reputation or quality or even just a good representation of what's out there in the world. So the ultra-fast fashion brands like Shein, Temu, Cider, even AliExpress are sort of legitimized as customers assume that being on the top page of search results means that they are the best, most reputable places to shop. It's just not true. They just have the most money to spend on search. So last week, I made a reel about how these Google AdWords, these search results, can become even more insidious. And it involves selling knockoffs, copies, and stolen designs, all taken from smaller brands and designers. You can go watch that reel, but I will tell you, it is really hard, like so hard to cram a lot of info into 90 seconds. So you'll never get all the information you need in a reel. And I'm going to elaborate a lot more here. So if you've been listening long enough, you know I'm a big fan of the Selkie aesthetic. That's S-E-L-K-I-E. It's a small brand of floofy, dreamy pastel dresses, and they are very distinctive and unique in the world of apparel. The first time I saw them back in 2019 in a vendor showroom, I was working for that rental brand back then. I knew that we had to bring them in, that our customers would go wild for them. And I'll tell you, when I went back with photos, everyone was skeptical. And guess what? Now it's a major brand for that platform. And people sign up just to rent Selkie dresses. Yes, I am patting myself on the back right now. That's what you hear. So one of Selkie's iconic designs is the puff dress. Seriously, go to selkiecollection.com and you will see that the puff dress has its own CLP, otherwise known as a category landing page. That's how important it is. It has a whole page just devoted to that one silhouette. It's an important part of the brand. It's where it all started. And they all retail for about $250 at full price. Now, I know that sounds steep, but it's all small batch. All the sizes are the same price and the most styles go up to 6X, which does make clothing production more expensive. 
There's a lot of fabric in each item. There's a lot of what we call make in the industry, meaning a lot of sewing and details. And there are a lot of exclusive prices and colors. So this this drives up prices. Totally worth $250, especially since none of us, Real Talk, needs a whole closet of them. One or two will serve us for a lot of occasions, right? So it's not like this this necessity that you need to stock up on, like underwear or bread. So here's what happens when I switch my Chrome browser into incognito mode. And I'm doing that because Google already knows way too much about what I want to see. And I wanted to show me the results that a regular shopper would see, not a rabble rouser like me. And guess what I see at the top of those search results when I type in Selkie puff dress. The first few results are legit Selkie dresses sold by various retailers. But number six is a Shein dress that is clearly a Selkie knockoff for $19.99. Remember, the original is about $2.50. Number seven is another knockoff from Francesca's for a steep $53.20. Also, what, what a random price. Number nine is a copy by Cider for $30.60. And number 10 is a copy available on Amazon for $18.99. Once again, the real thing is about $250. So how did all of these brands get up there in the top of the search results? Well, these brands outbid other retailers to appear at the top of the search results, even retailers who were selling actual Selkie dresses, including Selkie itself. These fast fashion brands knowingly bid on Selkie puff dress, and they knowingly stole the design too. If you're a diehard Selkie fan like me, you know these are copies. But if you're a diehard Selkie fan, you probably aren't searching Google because you know exactly where to get a dress. However, if you're a customer who is intrigued by the idea of these dresses, you like the aesthetic, you want to try something new, you're going to be enticed by these less expensive copies, especially if you haven't seen how disappointing all of these are in real life. Because we can all agree, you can't sell a dress with all of that make and fabric for $20 or even $50 if you're not cutting a lot of corners and using a lot less fabric. As a new customer, someone curious about this aesthetic, you'll find yourself on Cider or Shein or even Amazon. And even if you don't buy the dress whose search results brought you to that website, you will probably buy other things while you're on the site. And so the fast fashion brand that literally stole the idea from Selkie benefits from also bidding on the search term, sulky puff dress or what have you. And as an added benefit for Shein and Cider, not sulky, a new customer might decide, oh, these puff dresses, they aren't that special anyway, and never buy anything from sulky. They might even think that sulky didn't come up with the idea first. <laughs> yeah, it's infuriating. It's gross, right? I tried searching for some other items, including other Selkie stuff. There's another iconic Selkie style called the Ritz dress. And those search results in the top, I found copies from ASOS and Amazon. Those were in the top 10. 
Do you remember the iconic Larika Matoshi strawberry dress from a few years ago? Searching that brought up copies from every corner of the internet, each one sadder than the previous. Searching new work dress brought up something super weird from New York and Company, as well as some other rando online retailers that I've never heard of. You could do this all day with brands you like, styles you like, even ideas that you like. And it's all super gross because we know that fast fashion brands are copying small brands and designers every single day. That's bad enough. But then to bid on those brand names and the names of their iconic styles, that is so unethical. To make matters worse, we know that these small brands don't have the cash to bid top dollar for these words, so they will always be beaten out by these fast fashion brands who have a lot of money to spend. And then you want to take it even further to think that, say, Shein or Cider have all this money to spend on Google search while still offering such unreasonably low prices? Well, that's just scary because it underscores how much exploitation and cut corners are involved in making the things they sell. And yes, I think it's, part of my French, really fucked up that Google kind of looks away on these things, even though they are helping bad brands capitalize off of bad things like stealing designs. So, What can you do as a customer? I mean, this is a real knowledge makes the difference situation. Like a lot of things we talk about around here, right? Now that you know, you can rethink how you approach search results and shopping. Recognize that just because a brand appears at the top doesn't mean that they are the best option in terms of quality and aesthetic. Tell your friends too, because this is sort of secret knowledge unless you work in e-commerce or marketing. Furthermore, this is very important, and I know it's really hard. Resist the urge to buy dupes of stolen ideas. It's just never as good, right? Literally never as good because the quality is never there, but also sort of like figuratively, emotionally, karmically, I don't know, pick your favorite adverb there. It's never as good because you know it was stolen, right? just all feels bad. And, you know, why would we spend our hard-earned money on things that don't make us feel great? Okay, with all of that, let's jump into my conversation with Isabel. Why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, uh, my name is Isabel Varela. I'm a self-love coach, motivational speaker, an activist, a medicine woman. I help women to really transform their relationships with themselves, the clothing that they wear for our planet. And you reached out to me a while back to talk about retail therapy and how it's not really therapy. And you said like, oh, I've got like a lot of stories about this. And you sure do. So I thought we could talk about how you got to where you are right now. Ooh, okay. And so I know it starts with a harrowing realization that you had more than $100,000 in credit card debt at 26. Yes. So let's go back in time. So I had a phone call from my oldest brother asking me, Hey, Isabel, what's going on? I just got a phone call from the car insurance company. My response was, 
Oh, it's you know, don't worry about it. It's my <laughs> business expenses. I got it. Right. So, got off the phone, and that's when I realized. All of my dreams of being a famous fashion designer moving to New York City were never going to happen because at the time I was in Dallas, Texas. I just started my women's brand. I was in five stores. I had my own studio in downtown Dallas. I was dressing celebrities. I was a fashion designer to watch across the South. But that all came to a very abrupt ending um, because I had to face the reality that I need to change my life before it continues to get worse because I hadn't paid my bills and my car note, my bills, my <sighs> utilities for three months. And I was going from one boyfriend's house to the next. I had my stuff in my, my little, my little car. And from that point on, I pretty much the next day or maybe two days after that, I had to look at all my credit card statements because I had, because I had maxed out seven credit cards. Then I decided I need to get a full-time job because I had my business. I wasn't working on the side. I was just doing that full-time. And then I got myself into a debt management program and then found myself a therapist. (laughs) No big deal. So like, how did you get there? Because I'm sure it didn't happen overnight. Oh, it did not. It actually started at a very young age. I loved clothes. I loved art. And, you know, I combined the two and wanted to use my creativity and styling. And at 16, I had my first retail job down south in Lake Charles, Louisiana. That's where I was born. And I got my first paycheck. And it was about probably like, I don't know, it was like, it was a small check. It was like $800. To me back then, it was like, this is huge. But to that, to me, was the start of my love and then my addiction to clothing. I spent my entire check on clothes at that <sighs> store. And wow. then it's funny because I said small because that's what I thought back then. Oh, it, it's $800 mm-hmm. of clothing. That's fine. And to right. me, when I look back, I'm thinking, oh my God, $800. Like, seriously, that could have gone to so many things. <laughs> but that's what I kept choosing is every single time I would make a paycheck, get a paycheck. I would rationalize. It's like, you know, well, I need these items. And it just continued. And the thing that started after that, what started to happen was I would really gravitate to wild and avant-garde pieces of clothing Mm -hmm. so I could get attention. And whether or not it was positive or negative intention, I loved it. And that's Mm -hmm. when I thought, huh? If I wear crazy clothes, then I'm going to get attention. I'm going to feel like I'm loved. I'm going to feel enough and worthy. And I mean, there's some times, you know, it's fun to style, but it got to the point where I always craved it. So it was a continued 16, 17, 18, college, and all the way to 26. So that is 10 years of spending. (laughs) And, um... Yeah, I didn't stop until that phone call. It's interesting because I think like everybody who is listening to this conversation, like maybe they didn't get, it didn't get as extreme for them. But I think for a lot of people, this is like, you're you're speaking a truth that we know. I mean, I've definitely been there where I felt like I bought a lot of clothes 
for multiple reasons. You know, it was to feel good, to fit in. Uh, definitely just, I don't know, it checked an emotional box that I needed, you know? And there were times, I mean, there are still times now where I think like, oh, wow, if I hadn't bought all those clothes over all those years, I'd probably own like a house now, you know? And if like I multiple houses, perhaps, I don't even want to let myself think about that. But I think so many of us have been in that place where we're kind of outspending ourselves on clothes and other things. Did you find that you were over-consuming other things like beauty products, shoes, that kind of stuff? Yes, I actually, and I don't have a picture because that video camera is lost somewhere. I had 300 pairs of shoes and that plus clothing. And then I had a lot of accessories. I was obsessed with scarves. So I had about, you know, one of those chest drawers that has like four drawers, all of it full of scarves. I had belts wow. galore um, and jewelry. And actually it took me until last year to finally declutter my jewelry because that was a one thing that I had not decluttered since all the times that I had purchased jewelry and I saw that and realized, oh my God, I got to let this go. Uh, like mm-hmm. I'm not wearing these pieces, but, and right. oh, let's not forget, there's also makeup and mm-hmm. makeup products. Like, let me test mm-hmm. this out. Let me test this cleanser out. So it got to the point where it was, it was a lot, but the most amount of money was spent on the clothes and the shoes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there are so many subreddits and Facebook groups for people who ultimately are kind of like over shopping together and sort of, I don't know, I hate to say this, but kind of like almost encouraging or normalizing this kind of like overconsumption behavior. Um, there, For example, there is a subreddit for Sephora, there's a subreddit for Ulta, there's a subreddit for Glossier, and then there's just a subreddit for buying lots of makeup, basically, and skincare. And I'm always amazed by how much people are buying and and kind of like egging one another on, like sort of show, posting photos of their hauls and encouraging other people to buy hauls worth of stuff, meaning like lots of stuff at once. And I do think... For those of us who are a little bit older, I'm like really relieved that in my 20s and teens that like social media didn't exist in the same way where people would post photos and videos of all the stuff they bought at one time because I think that would have encouraged me to buy even more stuff that I didn't need. I don't know about you. I think that it's it's almost harder to not buy too much stuff now. I definitely agree with that because we have so much, so, so much access to the stores online and Mm -hmm. social media and then influencers and ads every single place you click online and then walking outside. And definitely whenever I was growing up too, I didn't have access to all these things. It wasn't, it wasn't as, um, available at my fingertips like it is now Mm -hmm. i literally had to get in a car drive to the store um so 
I definitely agree with that. It's just so accessible that it's like, why aren't you shopping? Like, well, uh, <laughs> I really should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting to think about how easy it is to over shop right now. Like, you don't even have to leave your house. But I bet when you were buying all those clothes and scarves and jewelry, you had to actually like go places to do it, and like it becomes like a full time job almost. But here, like with the with the rise of online shopping, it's like you could wake up in the middle of the night in your pajamas and place a bunch of orders and go back to bed. Like you never have to. I don't know. It's 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 too convenient. I guess is what I'm saying. It, it is, and I don't know if you ever shopped at Delia's, but I remember getting magazines. So then I would oh. circle all mm-hmm. the things I wanted, and then I would then take about. I mean, spend about one hour planning okay i'm gonna go to this store then this store and then i'm gonna drive to lafayette which is about like an hour away from where i was living to go shopping there and then the next day so it was like always planning for my next shopping trip and it got to the point where once i moved to a bigger city and because i lived in houston texas and i lived in dallas texas um it was thursday friday saturday sunday Shopping. Yeah. And yeah, I, I bet. That was, that was all I would do. And then uh, I remember I was sharing this with you. Even back then with AOL, um, that's like, you know, barely exists. It doesn't even <laughs> exist anymore. But <laughs> RIP. <laughs> I know. <laughs> my, you know, my hobbies always included shopping as the mm-hmm. first thing I would mention with whoever I was chatting online with like oh my god what do you do oh my god I'm a shopper me too so it was just that was my hobby and then all my friends that I had at that time that's all we would do shopping and then um plan for the next trip to go yeah yeah no it's interesting that you bring up the hobby because a lot of times if you take any sort of like survey like consumer survey or fill out your online dating profile or what have you and it asks you what you like to do shopping is like often listed as a hobby or an interest which is pretty wild when you like you take a step back you're like my hobby is spending money you know (laughs) uh, and looking looking for things to spend money on but also like you and i were talking about Shopping is a social activity, right? It's like, you know, how many times have I spent the afternoon shopping with my friends? You know, we get lunch and we kind of like in a weird way encourage one another to buy things just by shopping together. Or when I was a kid, like the only way the adults in my family could spend any time together and not get in a fight was by going shopping. (gasps) Oh my God, that was the same thing here as well with the family too and the friends. (laughs) Right, and so like- when we would go to the mall as kids, it felt like the best time ever because everyone was getting along and it was really exciting and you didn't know what to happen, what would happen, you know? And so I have always like, I, when I was a kid, I would always dream of living at the mall because it just seemed like it was the most perfect place in the world. Oh my God. You just reminded me. Do you remember that, the mall madness game? Yes. Oh my God. That was, Speaking fu- of, oh my gosh, <laughs> getting kids to go shopping at an early age. Like that's the thing. It's like, we sort of didn't stand a chance. This is for those of you who are too young to know what this is. Well, you're lucky. Cause this game is basically like you go shopping with a credit card and there's like the whole, the whole exciting part of it is there's like a credit card machine in the center. <laughs> 
Yes. It's so silly. But I mean, like Barbie was always going shopping and getting new clothes. And like the, every movie had like a montage in it where people were shopping and having a good time or like getting a makeover or trying on outfits. And so shopping becomes like really glamorous when you're a kid. It's weird to think like now people don't go to the mall in the same way as they did in like the 80s and 90s. So it's not like the same sort of appeal. And I think that's why people post so many like haul videos and stuff like that. Because that's how they get that like social aspect of shopping now that they can't do it in real life. Because it's not like you would sit on the couch with all your friends and you'd each be individually on your phone shopping together. That would be so weird. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but it's not quite as glamorous, right? It's so true. <laughs> it, it, isn't, it isn't as glamorous. And I was I was considered a mall rat when I was in my teens. Oh, oh. me too. <laughs> me too. I go to the mall every Friday <sighs> with my friends. Yes, and we would get... Back then, I would get, well, I still love French fries. That's still my, I still, that's still, uh, <laughs> I still love French fries, but get my little chicken wings, French fries, go shopping. And then back then, it was Hot Topic. It was Gadzooks, Wet mm -hmm. Seal. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Like, if you go to a mall now, there are still so many stores and malls that cater to teenagers specifically. And I do think it's because those are probably the people who spend the most amount of time in malls still because they're just – there aren't that many places to hang out as a teen anymore. I was reading an article this morning about how less and less teenagers are interested in getting their driver's license, their driver's licenses, because there just aren't that many places to drive, you know? And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess you're probably right. Like, you're pretty much, you could just have your parents drive you to the mall, you know? Um, but I do think that, like, we're kind of socialized really young to shop as, like, a social outlet, as a way to feel good. So you have a more than $100,000 in credit card debt, which almost makes me, like, get palpitations when I think about it. Like, like I, I have anxiety just thinking about it. And you're only 26 years old. So what is the first step there? Like you have all this stuff that you aren't wearing or using. Did you sell it? So I did a few things. Um, boom, after look, I know reminding me of that time, I also get anxiety because I just, I can remember that feeling of like, what in the F am I going to do? I mean, I had so <laughs> many friends around that age who ended up declaring bankruptcy. And it was all store credit cards, just credit cards that, that were handed out at college, you know, all maxed out, unpayable, you know, because they're like working at Starbucks with me or something. Um, it's not uncommon for people to hit their mid to late 20s and be in a really bad financial situation. Oh, man, just knowing that it's just, it's so disheartening because we should be taught how to take care of our finances, but yes. they don't teach that. Nope. But what I did or what helped me was calling that debt management program. And at that time, I literally chose the management program, the debt management program by intuition because I Googled it. It's like, how do I get out of a hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars debt? How do I pay off all these cards? Because I also had a lot of store credit cards, Gap, Banana Republic, um, and Taylor, um, express all the, and then a V two visas. Oh my goodness. But, um, they, so once I chose the debt management program and they were called CCCF it was a nonprofit based in California. After speaking to them, 
they ended up, you know, setting me up with a, like a financial, you could say like counselor advisor that was mm-hmm. helping me. They consolidated all of my, most of my credit cards. Um, and they had to talk them, you know, talk to the credit card companies. So just them expressing and explaining to me how they're going to help me really calmed my anxiety down for a split second. But after that, then I had to go to the next step. Oh my God, I have to get a full-time job. I have to go back Mm -hmm. to work. So my ego Mm -hmm. was hit hard because everyone knew me as this, it's Bovrellas, this fashion designer. Wait, where's her brand? Now Isabel's back working at Nordstrom? What happened? And then the third thing um, was, what am I going to do with all these clothes? So what I started doing was selling them to friends. It's like, does anyone want any clothes? I'm going to start selling things. And then two, so say two, two and a half years after that, I ended up having an estate sale because I was moving to New York city. And that's when mm-hmm. people started coming and just grabbing all kinds of things. And I started to recoup some money, not that much. And then um, <laughs> at that point, I really didn't know that much about sustainability. So there are some pieces that I just donated. And then there mm-hmm. were consignment shops because I also had gone from buying at like Goodwill, thrift store, secondhand, all the way to buying designer, which was towards the end of, you know, before my big wake up call, I started buying designer, which was insane because I had so much debt. And I remember going to these luxury stores like, oh, let, you guys offer layaway? Of course we do. Okay. Well then let me get all these five pieces. So I, <laughs> so it was like one thing after another and then getting into therapy, it actually took me almost three years to finally admit that I had a problem. And you know, the, my therapist would, you know, you know, would, um, prompt me. It's like, Hey, Isabel, we should look at your, your, your fashion addiction, your shopaholism. And I would say, uh, um, let's talk about finances. But then it wasn't until <laughs> <laughs> I was ready enough to finally realize, Oh my God, I have a problem because I would have to in one year, I moved six times wow. because it one, I couldn't find a roommate. These places were expensive and it was, I wasn't making enough money. And what really helped me to see how big my problem was, is like every time I would move, I had so much stuff and I would have to make so many trips back and forth to these locations and apartments. And then I saw so many tags. So I was hit mm-hmm. with reality again. After going through all of these things, going through the debt management program, starting a full-time job, looking at my Mm -hmm. credit cards and going to therapy, now I'm hit again with reality of unpacking, packing, and then that's when I just, okay, what else can I do? I'm selling my clothes. I'm doing commission. Um, So yeah, it was that, the decluttering also helped me to start seeing, which then helped me to finally truthfully say, oh my God, I have a problem. I'm ready to talk about this in therapy now. I mean, that's amazing. I was thinking like in the years before you realized that, but while you were also trying to conquer this debt, I I was thinking like, oh wow, she must have been really feeling this like sense of like 
I don't know, like withdrawal, like restlessness, because you hadn't begun to address the psychological issues. And yet you were like being forced to tackle the financial issues. And so you must have been like, oh, I wish I could just like buy something. I wish I could buy something to make myself feel better, you know? Oh my God. Yes. And there was actually, it was one two, three. So 2013, when I finally moved to New York City, I still had debt. I paid some of it off, but I was still purchasing clothing, but not at, not at the rate that I was before, but I was still purchasing. And Mm -hmm. then every time I would purchase, I knew that that's that amount of money less that I could send to pay off my credit card. And then when I got to New York, now I'm hit with like, this rent is high. I have to get three jobs, four jobs. Because I had two, I had two full-time jobs. I know. Mm-hmm. I was like, how do you how do you do that? I don't know, but I managed to do that. And then, <laughs> and then I um had a side hustle. And then that's when I I had to stop shopping because every time I would go outside, let me go walk down Soho. I mean, there's so many cool stores oh, here. In New York, oh, especially. Oh it was oh. And this was a place that I I started to put more boundaries on myself. And this is very hard. This is not like, oh, it was so easy. Heck no. No so way. Yeah. I actually had to, um, one, if I wanted to go to Soho or any other place, because I was still buying and spending, mm-hmm. I literally said, one, I have to bring my food because I can't be eating out. And then number mm-hmm. two, I can only bring my subway card. And number three, I can only have my driver's license. I cannot spend any money outside. If I want to go outside and do window shopping, I can't, I won't have any cash or credit card or not anything. So I would make those, you know, trips outside as quickly as possible because it was uncomfortable because I would see something in the window. It's like I'm tempting myself. It's like I'm trying to sabotage myself. And so stressful. Oh my God. And then I, you know, I did that for a month. I didn't get any, it didn't even close. But then I rationalized and said, you know, I want, I'm, I'm doing good. It's been a month. So I didn't, I didn't follow my own boundaries. And I went to American, I remember this. I went to American, um, American apparel mm-hmm. and I already had like seven black leggings and I just oh, went no. inside. Yes. I went inside and I had my credit card with me. It's like, I can handle this. I won't buy anything. And then I look at the leggings like, well, I, well, my leggings, well, I don't have this type of black legging. I tried them on and I was like, well, I did the same rationalization and I felt like that, that high that I would always get when I enter the stores. And mm-hmm. then, you know, I, I paid it. And as soon as I walked off that door of American apparel in Soho, all this guilt and shame. And I was so upset Aww. and I literally turned around, went back inside and I said, Hey, I need to return this. I was like, Oh, what happened? It was a mistake. I, I don't know. Could I please return these? Yes. We'll make this exception. Cause it, I think it was one of those final sale things or something. And then that's when I said, no, this is it. I can't do this anymore. And that's when I started my no shopping at all because it was, it was really hard. I had to change my behavior. So that's when I stopped shopping for a year and eight months. And the first thing that I purchased at the year and eight month mark were, were underwear. Cause I mean, my things were getting a little holy. So. <laughs> 
it was time for some new undies, but it, it was very difficult. And I had to um, have five to six different behaviors for me to overcome the shopping itch. And I always had mm-hmm. a list on my phone. It's like, okay, if I want to go shopping, I can choose from, let me go outside. Let me go hiking. Let me go paint. Let me sew something. Mm-hmm. Um, do an alteration reading. I think I just named some more behaviors, but those are all the things that I had on my phone that I always had to go look at because I'd always get that shopping itch or someone would mm-hmm. invite me. Hey, Isabel, we're going to go to Soho. We're going to check out some stores. No, I can't. I can't. It's like, you never can anymore, Isabel, because I have so much debt to pay. And right, then that's right. when I had to, those friends then just became non-friends. I couldn't hang out with them anymore. I mean, that makes me so sad to just think about like losing friends because the only thing they can do for fun is go shopping. But I've also had friends like that in my life, whether it was like shopping was the thing or it was like drinking. Yes. You know, like that's the thing. Like I don't really want to go out and be like drunk all night. So I stopped hanging out with those people and, you know, like put I would put out ideas like, hey, what if we cook dinner instead or went to the park and like they weren't interested. And it was like, you know what? Maybe these aren't the right friends for me because I want to do other things with my time. So I totally understand that. That is hard though. I mean, like, it's it's interesting as you talk about this, I just feel like how isolating dealing with a shopping addiction, just like any other addiction, can be. Because as you know, I always have a lot of empathy. Well, I have empathy for people who struggle with any addiction, but I'll think like, for example, people who are, you know, a recovering alcoholic, right? Drinking is so socialized and so normalized that like people will drink at the office and it's always at dinner parties and events and you can go to a movie theater and there's drinks and like drinking is just everywhere. Like it must be so hard to just not do it when it's around you in your face. I feel like shopping is even bigger because for one, sometimes you have to shop because all your underwear has holes in them. (laughs) And so you're like, have to do the thing that you're addicted to, but do it in a moderate way. And on top of that, like, like we talked about, like shopping is like such a social activity and it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, women, they love shopping, like that kind of cliche. And like, there are books and movies that sort of like, I don't know, like, glorify overconsumption, yes, you know, yes. right? And that it's not unhealthy to have an addiction to shopping, basically. It's almost like a jokey thing. But the reality is, is that it's very unhealthy to have an addiction to shopping and that you can be addicted to shopping in the first place. You know, that's kind of shocking to a lot of people because we might like, some people might be like, okay, I can see like there are financial implications for being addicted to shopping, but it doesn't harm your health, right? But it it kind of does over time. All that stress is not good for you either. No, it's not at all. <sighs> Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Close Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. 
Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. 
High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Okay, so you went shopping eventually and bought some underwear, but how did that feel? Were you scared? Oh, I was terrified because the way I used to feel whenever I would enter the store or even before I would enter the store, I would get this rush of adrenaline like, Mm -hmm. yes, I'm going to find the perfect dress, this perfect this perfect black dress with the heels and then the anticipation of going to the store. And then right as I enter the store, it's like this other overwhelming amount of adrenaline and my endorphins, my heart's pumping. So now I'm walking through the stores and I'm like, I feel like there's this, this game and I had to grab all these clothes and put as much as clothes as possible in my arms so I can rush to the fitting rooms and then try on all these clothes and I would always get it. It was a hit of the endorphins, a hit of adrenaline, a hit of dopamine every single time. So whenever I went to go get my underwear, I was super scared. So I chose to go to Whole Foods because I started learning more about like sustainability. I was like, okay, let me go to Whole Foods. Let me go get that company um, or buy from Pact. It's like P-A-C-T underwear. Mm-hmm. So it was the first underwear that I purchased. And it was Whole Foods. So it was a mixture of, you know, f- groceries. So and I was all right. But then I needed to get some running shoes because mm-hmm. Lord, that was, it had, uh, my knees were hurting. And I was so scared to go to the store because I was scared that I still had that issue that, oh my God, what if, what if I still have that same feeling? This is going to be so difficult. And when I entered the store, um, I think it was like one of those, like, I forgot what it's called. Like one of those running stores in New York. Mm-hmm. I entered the store and I didn't get a feeling of that rush that I used to have. And I'm like really doubting myself. Like, no, there must be something wrong. Like, well, I'm, hmm. okay, well, let me try it another day. So I got my running shoes. And then the next week I didn't get, I didn't need to get anything. It's like, well, let me go into the store. Let me see how it feels. So then I went into Nordstrom and I walked Mm -hmm. through the doors and I didn't get that feeling. 
And I'm thinking, there's no way, there's no way that I, that this is true. Like this is a reality. And then, so I guess I'm doubting myself. I was like, well, let me just leave. I'm just going to leave. I need to go home anyway. And then a month later, like, let me try again. I went into the store and I think, uh, maybe, I don't even know. It was like one of those like cool local stores in New York city. And I walked in the store and I got this overwhelming and I didn't feel anything. And I got so overwhelmingly like it was a mix of, of relief mm-hmm. and then joy. And then I just started crying. So then I actually, you know, walked right back outside crying, walking down, you know, New York city and thinking, Oh my God, is this, is this over? So and then that was the third time. And that's when I realized, Oh my, Oh my God, I think I just, I think I was able to rewire my behaviors. And of course I asked my therapist, um, now my mentor at that point, And he said, it's possible to not, you know, to turn those addictions around. And he said, what would really be helpful is there's always a possibility that I could go back to spending that amount of money. But the more that I face that truth, the, mm-hmm. that increased my likelihood that I wouldn't go back. Cause then I kept practicing doing things you know, going to my other behaviors and not wanting to always go shopping because my experiences right. started to change. And then that's when I knew, oh my God, if I can do this, I wonder if anyone else has this issue. And then that yeah. just that just started the whole path of kind of where leads me to what I'm doing now. That's amazing. That's amazing, though. I mean, this is a big journey, and this is a big, I mean, it's a lot of growth as a person, you know? This is, like, an, a very difficult behavior to change and to, like, recover from. Yes. So how did this change your entire approach to life? Oh, so while I wasn't shopping for that year and eight months, I had to really be resourceful because I had to make a lot of sacrifices. I wasn't going out and I wasn't like eating at restaurants because I had so much debt and I had so much work I had to do because I had, you know, three jobs um, (laughs) at that point. (laughs) And so I was making my own like products, my, my cleaning products. So that helped me it opened a new door to sustainability. And, and that was in about 2015, whenever I found this, you know, like-minded community, the New York City Fair Trade Coalition, and then I saw the movie True Cost. And that right there, that was another um, wake-up call of realizing everything about the fashion industry and the truth and the malpractices and mm-hmm. how clothes are made. And that's that helped me to really continue on this path of no if i'm going to be in fashion if i'm going to keep doing fashion i want to do it the right way because Mm -hmm. i was throwing away clothes i was wearing things once i didn't care and then you know with my business back then i didn't i i just you know i looked at it as just creating but i didn't care about how much people were getting paid where the fabric was coming from 
And I was like, I don't want to do it that way anymore. So if I was able to change that behavior with addiction, it's like, well, then I need to change this as well. So my whole life changed into really being more aware. And then I just went into the rabbit hole of, oh my God, questioning everything. It's like, oh my God, I just went through this. Now I have to go through this experience of realizing the truth of the fashion industry. (laughs) It's a lot for sure. I do think that that's a really good call out though. That's like, the more you learn about it, the more it makes you not want to buy stuff. You know, I definitely, I mean, sometimes it swings you to this like opposite end where you're like, I'm never going to buy anything again. And that's not realistic either because eventually your underwear do fall (laughs) apart. Right. But like, you know, I have been there too, where I'm like, that's it. I don't even want to go. I don't want to buy anything ever again. And I used to like, for example, I used to love going to Target and just like walking around there. I can't explain it, but like before the <gasps> pandemic, I can, I, I I'd can be like, what a treat, <laughs> go to Target and just like walk around, right? Now I'm like, yeah, I don't want to go there. I don't care. It doesn't do anything for me. You know, like it lost its appeal. And I think it's because I just know so much about the industry and have had time to think about it. But man, I would be like, hard day at work. Maybe I'll go walk around Target, you know? Yes. And using shopping as an outlet, like an emotional outlet. That's, and that, that was the behavioral change because I would go shopping. At, that was my, that was also my emotional outlet when I was sad, angry, if I broke up with someone, if I got in a fight or if, um, Funny enough, like if I w- didn't have enough money, it's like, really, I'm going to, I don't have enough money, but I'm going to go shopping because I'm <laughs> sad I don't have enough money. Yeah, I know. I mean, listen, you say that there are a lot of people nodding their heads right now. Like, oh yeah, I feel that one. Oh, I feel that, you know, because we've been taught that getting something new will make us feel better. And, you know, for people who are listening, like, you know, Isabel is talking about clothes and jewelry and makeup and all that stuff. But like for you, it might be craft supplies or furniture or throw pillows or clothes for your dog or gardening stuff. It's all kinds of things that people buy to make themselves feel better. You know, I do think that like, I mean, I read this article a while back that really stuck in my head about how we work so much. We have these long work days because it makes us great consumers, because we buy stuff to cope with how tired or stressed out or depressed we are from working so much. And I I see that connection for me because when I've been my unhappiest at work, which usually involves working really long hours, dealing with difficult situations at the office, we'll say difficult personalities, I find myself buying stuff to feel better, you know? And it's like a vicious cycle, like you work to survive, but you also work to buy more stuff to make you feel better because you work, right? It's yes. like hard to get out of that. And really it's like, maybe that's not the right job for you. You know, maybe the way jobs function and the way people are treated at work should change. Not that we should all go buy stuff to feel better to cope with our jobs, right? So I think like kicking that habit is really, really hard. Um, so now you do, you've taken this expertise and you help other people. Yes. So, um, one of the jobs that I had in New York city, cause I'm one of those hyphenated persons, people, hyphenated <laughs> I feel people. You. Um, I feel you. So with a background in fashion design, I became a master tailor in New York city. So that okay. was one aspect 
of really taking care of your clothes and I started teaching others, hey, this is, this is how you can take care of your clothes. This is how you can, you know, make your things last, mending and repairing. And then it all went all the way through. Now I coach other women um, and I just founded my, as my fourth business. Cause remember, I've always had many different jobs here and a lot of businesses <laughs> yeah, here, yeah, but it's yeah. called repurpose your life. And what I'm doing here is I am, it's twofold. So I'm going to be creating a course called the repurpose your life course method, which will be launching at the end of the year where I'm okay. going to teach other women how to build a sustainable decluttering business and for them to be able to have more time freedom and also gain their own financial freedom. And at the same time, the repurpose your life course method teaches these consultants of the method, how to teach others and their clients, how to be more mindful of how they're shopping mind, body, and closet. So then also learning how to take care of their clothes and also seeing clothes in a new way. And we also, We'll take all of those pieces that you want to donate, get rid of, and actually bring them to swap shops instead of donating them at the Goodwills or Salvation Armies because it's like, mm-hmm. what is it? Like le- less than 10%. I don't even know that you very can- Very little. Yeah. Very, very little. Actually yeah. gets sold. So we will take all those clothes to the swap shop, the Sustainable Fashion Community Center here in New York City, and any housewares. We've partnered up with the House of Good Deeds because these things are going to people that actually need it. And then the things that, you know, can't be fixed, uh, if it's closing, clothing, then we'll send it to Green Tree Textiles, which is already a partner for the New York City Fair Trade Coalition. So it's really doing things in a healthier way, in a more holistic way. Um, so it's teaching others the -hmm. importance of clothes and like decluttering, because whenever you do decluttering, there's an emotional attachment to our pieces. And I realized this because whenever I had to declutter my closet and it was probably two months before I was going to finish paying off all of my debt, because it took me seven years, I realized how difficult it was because there's a lot of clothing that reminded me of my past Mm -hmm. whenever I was hanging out with different friends that I would shop with, go out and party with that. They're not in my life. And I decided to make a a documentary. It's called Fashion Attic. It's on YouTube um, to showcase the raw emotions and feelings that we go through. But all of the teachings that I've gone through is now in the Repurpose Your Life course method how to live more holistically, how to build a business more holistically. Because now that I started taking care of myself more, I wanted to take care of my things. I wanted to help others. And then that in turn, it helps the environment all at the same time. So that's Mm -hmm. what this course and the company is all based on. It's a holistic lifestyle company helping you to declutter your mind, body, and closet. I mean, I bet you learn so much about people and their lives when you help them declutter their closet. There's a lot going on in there. So much. And interestingly enough is social media has been helpful on that aspect because I started talking about myself and decluttering my jewelry. And that started this cascade of people. Wait, you do decluttering? 
because (laughs) (laughs) interestingly enough, people were more open to talking about decluttering because, you know, shopaholism, addiction, those words Mm -hmm. and terms, they're, they're heavy, they're difficult. And so with decluttering people a little bit more open and then once I get there, you know, they'll ask me questions because knowing and seeing all of my stories and my history and what I've been through, then they feel more comfortable sharing or asking me questions of like, do you think this is a lot of clothes? Mm-hmm. Like, am I shopaholic? Um, so it's, it really helps the, with the one-on-ones, you know, with the one-on-one clients with the decluttering, cause it's an emotional, physical, mental journey, spiritual journey. I mean, there's so much shame involved too, right? Yes. Like the the friends who have like very meekly told me at different times that they are struggling with credit card debt. I had a friend who was every back when guilt was still a thing. Remember oh, guilt.com? Oh my oh. God, I remember that. Yeah. She was buying stuff from guilt every day. Oh man. And was like, yeah, like I don't know what to do now. Like I can't afford to get my car fixed you know, because I have all this stuff and it's just, just so much shame. It's interesting because it's like we're encouraged to shop as much as possible, right? Yes. Ads, like in social media, all this stuff. But then when it becomes problematic, suddenly it's your fault and you should feel ashamed. And I would just say for anyone who is feeling that way, that there is no shame in this, that this is like, this is just something that happens. And yes, it is work to dig yourself out of, but it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or a weak person or that you should be embarrassed at all. Because like you said, we don't get taught how to manage our money. No, you know, not at all. Most people think that like, if you don't pay off your credit card, they charge you a couple bucks and it's no big deal. But actually like interest rates are really complicated and you could be paying a ton of interest on your credit cards, which doesn't make it any easier. Like they don't teach you about credit cards in school, but they certainly will give you one the moment you turn 18. It's wild. Oh man, I know this. I don't like that system at all. It's so true in college. I remember getting all kinds of... um you know, advertisement in the mail, get open up your first card, receive $200 worth of, you know, uh, credit to your to use on your visa. And of course, I'm looking at this. Wow, $200. Oh, my God, I can get those shoes I wanted. Then you look at the annual fee is $200 or something. It's like, oh, geez, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I think that like this is something that everybody needs to be talking about more because it happens to a lot of people in a variety of degrees. And, you know, a show that <laughs> a show that my husband and I like to watch is Married at First Sight. And uh, the new season is kind of boring, actually, but we will watch that show a lot. You know, it's like people who have never met are set up and they're married. Right. Um, and of course, like I'm sure they're strategically chosen to be paired together for the maximum amount of drama because some of these picks these pairs are really i'm like that what a bad idea anyway so (laughs) so one of the things that happens early on because it's always like the same sort of like the episodes kind of lay out the same way every season is that they have to move in together right these two people who just met each other a couple days ago have to move in together and they'll go to the woman's house and it's just like 100 pairs of shoes in the closet 
and all these clothes. And then the guy is like, I don't know how we're going to move all this stuff or how we're going to live together. You know, it's like such a recurring theme. And it's just like, yeah, that's just like how we're taught to live now or expected to live, which is that you should have a hundred pairs of shoes. Like in the era of like sex in the city, like I, I would think, I don't know, did you ever watch that when it was on? Oh my God. Yes. It was my favorite show. Okay. And I wanted to be Carrie and then Samantha. <laughs> right. Sorry. And so like, yes. here's the thing is that these ladies are all super rich, except for Carrie. I never understood where her money came from. She just wrote a column <laughs> once a week. But like, the, I remember an episode where it literally turned out that she had no savings at all and her, needed to buy her apartment and couldn't because all of her money had been spent on shoes. And you know what? That is sad. Not that she should feel ashamed about it, but just that, like, that's there's no financial literacy there, right? Like, we're just not taught that, like, hey, if you spend all your money on shoes, like Carrie Bradshaw, who you're supposed to admire, that you might not ever be able to, like, afford a place to live, you know? Like, that was what it really, like, it was some situation where basically she was going to have to, like, move out and have nowhere to live, but it would have, like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of shoes. And that really struck me. I was like, they should have talked about that more. It's not glamorous, but it, like, points to something, you know? And I feel like these kinds of shows, rather, they lead with the headline that, like, you should also buy a lot of shoes. They don't say, the fine print is, but you might not be able to afford your apartment someday. But don't worry, your rich friend will buy it for you or something. You know, it's, like, so it's so silly. Um, okay, so. What advice do you give others who are in the same situation where they're like, I just can't break the habit? The first thing that I do with the clients is ask them, do you know how much money you're spending and how much you're making? And they'll always give me some kind of estimate. So then, (laughs) so I say, please write that down. And then I give them the homework of whether they're in person or they need guidance, they want me there whichever one I'm open to. Let's look at one of your monthly statements of how much you're spending and on what. Once they look at that, the clients review everything, then the reality hits them of, oh my God, I'm overspending this amount of money. I thought I was bringing in this amount of money Mm -hmm. and only spending this. So that's one way of, you know, getting my clients to understand. It's the most uncomfortable one because finances is really hard, but it's really important. And then if someone's super closed of like, no, I don't want to look at my finances. Okay. Then let's look at your closet. I want you to pull out all of the clothing that have, that still have tags in them and then Mm -hmm. add them up oh, well, that may take me a while. No problem. I, you know, we could, we can (laughs) touch back tomorrow, touch base tomorrow. Right. And then again, the reality hits of how, how much money that they've spent that's sitting in their closet when they're Mm -hmm. already struggling, paying their finances and living paycheck to paycheck. So do those two things with clients because sometimes it's painful and it it's really harsh. But once you look at it, you look at the truth. Now we can start to set an action plan 
Because、mm-hmm. the more that we keep avoiding it and running away from it, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger in like our mind, and it just let me just keep doing this. But if you really want to take that next step to not have to live paycheck to paycheck, not have to struggle to stress about money, you need、mm-hmm. to face it. It's time to face it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true, and I think you know, money is one of those things that's really hard for people to talk about, you know, especially like personal money situation. And years ago, I took a small business class, and in the first session, the instructor was like, "Listen, we're going to start with the hardest thing you're going to do in this class, which is being honest with yourself about money." So. I want you all to write down like what you're spending every month and what your credit card debt is and do you have student loans and what's your rent and you know you're all going to find your credit score. In fact, she asked everyone, raise your hand if you know your credit score, and one person raised their hand. She asked someone, why don't you know your credit score? And they said, I don't want to know. I assume it's bad. And everybody in the classroom, myself included, nodded our heads like we agreed. Then we all went home and did our ran our credit and. Like everybody's was way better than they thought. We just assumed things were bad. Like we didn't want to know the truth, so we never looked into it. And it was really eye opening for a lot of people to say, like, I have to be honest with myself about what my financial situation is and where I'm spending money because we're not often taught to think about that too hard, and we certainly have a lot of discomfort talking about it with others. So I'm sure it's. Very stressful for your clients to talk to you about what they're spending money on. It is, and it it is, and it isn't because once they realize that I've been there too,、mm-hmm. and can really understand and empathize at a bigger degree versus like maybe you know someone that really hasn't another speaking to another professional that really hasn't gone through that.、Mm-hmm. It's almost this like. Okay, I don't feel as guilty. I can, I can share. This person's gonna understand. She's been through this, so it's it goes both ways because it is it is very difficult. But then it's also a relief to know that this person has gone through the same、mm-hmm. thing. So I'm gonna listen to her more because she's been through it and she got herself out of it,、right. and I know that she wants to help. That's amazing. I'm so glad that people have you to help them. Yeah,、uh, thank you.、Um, do you have any other advice for people who maybe aren't like, okay, I need professional intervention at this point, but I just like need to stop shopping? Like, what would you tell them to do? Ooh, so another very simple thing that helped me in the beginning, and this was something、mm-hmm. I would do as well whenever I was like, okay, I need to stop shopping. I need to slow down. I actually. Started keeping track of how many times I was going shopping in a month. Okay, that was the first thing. Very simple. How many? How many times are you going shopping? The next thing under that would be why. Why did I go shopping on this day? Can I remember why I went shopping on this day? And sometimes, depending on how open you are, you'll like, well, I had a bad day. Okay, right. And then, so you start seeing. What you know, your own pattern. So you're doing your own self-assessment, and this is where it's your goal, and it's better for you to be as honest as possible, so you can see what's going on. Because once you start seeing your own pattern, then it kind of prompts you to say, "Oh, 
Oh, I went because I was sad. I did that four times. Huh. So it starts to ask, I mean, you start to ask a little bit more questions. And then the next thing after that, if you're open, is how much money did you spend in that month? So Mm -hmm. then you realize, oh, God. So I spent, let's say, 500 bucks Mm -hmm. because I was sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a hard one, right? That's a hard fact to face. Yeah. Definitely. So it's it's um slowly slowly doing that and then the other thing I always recommend is declutter. Mhm. Yeah. Right it, and it's those are all decluttering would be the the one thing that is a little bit easier to look at cuz then you realize how much you have and I always recommend everyone to take every single thing out of their closet, put it all in their bed and so you can see how much and it's like yeah. this shocking reality of like, oh my God, I have too much. Mm-hmm. Or, ooh, I have a lot of things that have tags in it. I need Oof. to look at this. So it kind of makes you, it kind of, um, it's that little, it's like planting a seed of, uh, maybe I should look at this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great idea. I mean, I, I do agree that you need to take everything out of the closet because I think that many people will find that they have a lot of stuff in there that's become sort of invisible to them that they don't see anymore, that's been hanging out in there for quite a while, that they just like look past or is buried in the corner, you know? Yes. So, yeah. many, so many hidden, so many hidden clothes are just, just, just chilling in the dark corner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and you know, some of us like, man, my closet situation in the place we're living right now is horrible. And so like stuff doesn't even stay on the bar and things will fall and I'll lose them. And I'm always frustrated and missing things for like three months. And then I go in and take everything out. And when you know, all the things I've been looking for are like stuffed on the corner with something that fell on top of them. So it also can just be nice to take everything out and see what you have and find um, things. Oh my God. Yes. Oh, and you just reminded me of something. Mm-hmm. I used to say I had the bent bar syndrome. So another, and this is to bring some humor in. If you have, <laughs> if your bar is bent in your closet, <laughs> you need a, <laughs> you need to check things out. Look in that closet, take everything out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's another one. That, that's um, a really good call out. I mean, if you're like having to do really creative hanging to keep things in your closet, uh, where you're like hanging hangers on hangers on hangers, just might be worth taking a look too. Yes. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Isabel. Do you have any like final thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with everyone? Yes. It's just to really reemphasize that all your feelings are okay and you're still a good and lovable person. This is, yes. it's a behavior that you're working and you're, you're working on looking at. And then if you can change it, you definitely can change it. It takes, it's like, I look at, it's a skill. Yeah. Just like learning how to do your finances is a skill. Learning how to make better behavior, like, ch- like change your behavior. It's a skill because it's a practice, just like riding a bicycle. So it's like every single time you do it, it's like compounding interest. I was like, okay, I did it one more time. Okay. Let me try it again. Let me try it again. And you're going to make mistakes and it's okay, but you can get right back on. Keep going because all the, the tries that you did before, they don't disappear. It's just, mm-hmm. okay, now let me go back again. It's the more compounding interest. I'm going to keep trying. 
that's yeah. the thing I'd like to always share. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's a it's it's a journey. It's process all of those words. <laughs> yes, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Isabel. Oh my God, thank you so much. This was really amazing. And thank you for the opportunity to come on here and share with your community. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. Evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand 
ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. Thank you so much to Isabel for sharing her story with us. I will be sharing all the ways you can find her in the show notes, including if you want to hire her to help you. So check that out. I thought we would just end this episode with a little information about something Isabel and I just talked about for about five seconds. A really important topic, actually. The mall madness game. Something that lives in my memory as the most overt interaction with consumerism and capitalism that I experienced as a child. And it's a long list, okay? (laughs) So... Mall Madness was introduced by Milton Bradley in 1988. I didn't play it for a few years because I was a little too young to be interested at that point, or maybe immature, I'm not sure which, but it continued to be heavily advertised to tweens for years afterwards, so I kind of always wanted it. But I remember that it was a little on the pricey side, and according to my mom, it was, quote, stupid. Fortunately, in seventh grade, my friend Jessica got it for Christmas. It was a little disappointing. You'll hear more about it. Anyway, in the 80s and 90s, Milton Bradley, who seemed to make every game I loved as a kid, decided to develop more games for a mostly untapped market, tweens, and specifically tween girls. 
To be fair, games for tween girls had proven to be pretty lucrative, if not boring, with titles like Girl Talk. I remember that being a very boring version of Truth or Dare. Uh, Girl Talk Dateline. Yes, it was about dating. Another heteronormative dating game, this one from Milton Bradley, called Heartthrob. And even the Babysitter's Club game, which was also a little dry and disappointing, much better to just read one of the books. <laughs> Mom Madness and Dream Phone, which was another tween girl game, leveled up by adding electronic elements to the gameplay. Also drove up the price point, right? Dream Phone would come later than Mom Madness, and it purported to combine, oh, this, I just hate this for all of us, the top interests of every 90s girl, crushing on boys and talking on the phone. Wow, what a time to be alive, right? <laughs> the goal of the game, like, you know, how you won, was to figure out which of the 24 teenage bachelors in the game liked you. It was sort of like Clue, but, you know, kind of dumb. But it did have a phone in the center of the game board that you dialed to get recorded clues. I'll tell you, another friend had this. It was only fun to play like once, maybe twice. And then it was very easy every single time to figure out very early on who who the hunk was that was interested in you. It was not well created, well planned, well written. I have no idea. Is a game written? I don't know. Anyway, you know what? Let's just listen to the commercial, okay? Who, who, who's got a crush on you? The electronic game with the talking phone to win. Call guys, get clues, figure out which guy really likes you. He's not wearing a hat. Bye, guys. What'd he say? My secret. Uh -huh. <laughs> He's not at the beach. See you later. Guys. <laughs> it's Dan. Dan, my man. You're right. I really like you. Yes. <laughs> Dream phone, the hot electronic talking phone game. It's for you. All right, so that was Dream phone. <laughs> Horrible music, I think we can all agree. As I mentioned, Mall Madness arrived on the scene a few years earlier than that in 1988. The board was a two-story shopping mall, lovingly rendered in 80s pastels. And players navigated that as part of the gameplay. The goal was to spend all of your money to buy six items from your shopping list and return to the parking lot. Getting to the parking lot was the hard part. Seriously. I mean, <laughs> ripped from the headlines, right? Whoever did that first won. Yes, this sounds tedious as an adult. It sounds like, you know, running errands. But, oh my God, I wanted to play that game as a kid. The center of the game board was a computer. And I put that in quotes as I was writing this because, I mean, I guess technically it was a little bit of a computer, but in a very simple way. And it allowed players to make credit card purchases and hear mall announcements about sales. You know what? Let's listen to that ad, too, because I feel like I'm doing a bad job of describing it. Got your credit card? Yeah! It's Mall Madness. The new shop till you drop game that really talks. Sale at the fashion boutique. It's all the fun of a shopping spree. With Mall Madness, you get it all. A bank account and your own credit card. Theron at the sunglass boutique. Mall Madness really talks. To win, buy everything on your list and be first out of the mall. Attention mall shopping. Mall Madness, the electronic shopping game that really talks. From Milton Bradley, it's the mall with it all. I just wanted to add... 
that some of the store names are kind of hilarious to me even now. And I kind of wonder if I didn't have the sophisticated humor to appreciate them as like an 11-year-old. We've got I Am Coffin Drugstore, Novel Idea Books, Frump's Fashion Boutique, Ding-a-ling Phones, M.T. Wallet's Department Store. I mean, a laugh riot, right? Unsurprisingly, this game format and, you know, winning by spending all of your money on shopping was a bit controversial, which is, to be fair, a little surprising considering it was like the decade of malls and shopping. But yeah, people were appalled. Adweek reporter Farah Warner said, Mall Madness makes women out to be bargain-crazy, credit-happy fashion plates. Other critics felt that it cultivated impulse shopping among young girls. And many observers noted that no boys were shown in any of the commercials, further reinforcing shopping and overconsumption as a female behavior. Obviously, people were also not pleased that this game involved credit cards. Meanwhile, Milton Bradley PR manager Mark Morris, doing his job like he should, countered that the game taught players how to judiciously spend their money. The game was a hit, inspiring other game companies to create shopping-themed board games, because who doesn't need more of those? There was a game called Let's Go Shopping, Meet Me at the Mall. The goal of the former was to create an outfit, while the latter, Meet Me at the Mall, tasked girls with buying as much stuff as possible before the mall closed. While Mall Madness seems like such an 80s, 90s invention, a time capsule of just such a different time, it has been reborn a few times in this century, with a Miley Cyrus version in 2008, followed by a Littlest Pet Shop version. All in all, I would love to have a game night with friends where we play all of these tween games, including Mall Madness, because I have a feeling that they might be a lot more fun as snarky grownups who know that credit card debt is not fun, right? But imagining ourselves exposed to this nonsense as kids, well, it's like no wonder that we have such complex and sometimes destructive relationships with shopping and clothing and credit cards as adults, because it's all inside our brains, dropped in there years and years ago. And it's going to take a lot of work to untangle that. Recognizing it, naming it, that's step one in making these changes. But we can't give up and say, well, I can't help it. This is bigger than me. Because we can help ourselves. And we can help one another when we start talking about it. It's been something I've been working on for years on a personal level and talking about it, breaking it down, helping us all untangle it and separate ourselves from it is one of my missions this year on Close Horse. So get ready for even more conversations about that. We can change this for ourselves and everyone around us. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, Mom-maticized by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even a review if you're feeling spicy on Apple Podcasts. And, you know, most importantly, tell your friends, get them over, lure them over with some mom madness, maybe some girl talk, and then tell them all about Clothes Horse and what I do over here. 
If you'd like to support my work financially, which I would very much appreciate, you can learn more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast. And thank you as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White, not only for our music and audio support, but also for being cool, figuratively, not literally, with me turning off the air conditioning on a 100 degree day so that I can have the best sound quality of all. Thanks, Dustin. And thank you to all of you. See you next week. Bye.